You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 62. Today I'll be talking to Alessandra Maria. So my name is Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes, at artaffairspodcast.com. But the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, Check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well, like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the information about that at patreon.com slash artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is artist Alessandra Maria. Originally from Seattle, but now based out of New York, Alessandra makes gorgeous and timeless works using mostly charcoal and gold leaf. Those materials and the beautifully stained paper that she uses gives her work a very old aesthetic while also being extremely modern. I talk with her about her charcoal and gold leaf technique on the show, as well as the way that she develops her compositions in terms of patterns instead of light. Her upcoming solo show at Gallery Flightermoss, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alessandra Maria. Alessandra, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you on. Hi, it's so good to be part of it. I'm so honored. Thank you. All right. So let's dive into your background a little bit. And I know that you were you were born and grew up in the Seattle area. Um, so, so was that, I mean, were you on like the outskirts of Seattle, like suburbs, or was it more in like the, the, the heart of the city? Yeah, so I definitely, it was the suburbs. I am originally from a small town called Redmond, Washington. Um, It's not so small anymore because Microsoft was founded there in the time actually uh, in my period of time growing up. So I got to see it go from like a very sleepy little unknown town to an explosion of, you know, a much bigger town. And um, yeah, Born and raised and um, went to high school in downtown Seattle. So, you know, I have a lot of roots in the city proper. And yeah. What kind of work did your parents do? Was it anything like art related? No, not even remotely. Um, My mom and dad, so they both, as I was growing up, they were in food manufacturing. So Mm. my mom uh, ended up owning a, um, my mom went to Italy when she was in her early 20s and she fell in love with calzones. And so she started herself in like this little basement, uh, this little calzone company, like she would be like hand rolling them with her uh, rolling pin and doing all that. And um, they eventually built it, you know, bit by bit into like a major manufacturing company. And uh, they did really well for a while until the recession hit, you know, and there was a whole series of things that happened that was unfortunate. But now they work in the pizza industry. And you were just saying that they won an award. That's exciting. Yeah, it's the <laughs> cutest thing ever. They, um, 
Yeah, they won a, um, a pizza award. So they both came in to New York to receive their uh, award for their pizzeria. But it actually, it's a pretty big deal. It's an Italian award. I guess there's only yeah. like 50 pizzerias in the world who get this award or the country. I'm not sure. And um, they're going to be there with a lot of their icons, you know, the people who are the really, really in the pizza world they really love. So that's going to be really fun and very cool. And that was all like sparked just from uh, the time that your mom spent in Italy? Yeah, I guess we're a family of uh, um, kind of crazy, passionate people. And, you know, I love art. My mom's religion is pizza. And so, (laughs) you know, so that's they uh, that was where I got started. And yeah, that's uh, what they've built their life around. Well, I know that you've you've spoken in the past about um, either your father or both of your parents really instilling within you that work ethic, just being as an example of just a strong work ethic looking at your parents. Yeah. I mean, yes, definitely. Like they, um, they were always, you know, they like, yeah, that was a huge family value is working extremely hard. I mean, I know that's a very common family value, but I know for me, you know, I just, I would remember, remember watching my dad and just like, you know, how hard they, uh, worked to build it. How did, um, I guess, how did art enter your life then? If, 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 you know, parents, it didn't come from your family. What got you interested in art? Like, how did you become interested? So basically, uh, my, I was always really, really interested in art. My, um, when I was growing up, my mom had a coffee table book on Botticelli. And I remember, you know, leafing through it and looking at just all the different images in there and just kind of being astounded, thinking, how the heck does a human being make something like this? It was just beyond comprehension. And um, so that kind of, you know, and having like, I don't know, yeah, my mom liked Renaissance work. So there was a lot of that in our household, just like these reproductions and books and things like that. And um, in addition, I really, really loved fantasy books. And I loved making up my own little world. And uh, so when I was a kid, I really started drawing a lot because I was trying to basically make these worlds, make these expansive environments and these, you know, things that I would be making up in my head. And, uh, you know, yeah, I started doing it at that age and I just never really stopped. And it's basically what I do to this day in a lot of ways. (laughs) It's not that different. (laughs) Most of like what sparked your creativity was was more internally driven, rather because I you know a lot of people will be comics or music covers yeah. or things like that that will spark their creativity. But it sounded like it was more just you wanted to get these stories out of your head. Yeah, yeah, it, that absolutely is what it was. I think it was very innocent. It was very um, you know very very simple. Just yeah, um, I'm just one of those people uh, who have a very uh, rich internal world, you know, always making things up. And so it's always been kind of an outlet for kind of solidifying these things I would just come up with. And it was always like, you know, a fairyland, you know, when I was really young, it was, it was stuff like that, you know, or Zelda fan art or God knows, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, that was definitely, that was definitely the starting point for it. Is it something that your your parents like actively encouraged in you? Like, were they supportive of your interest in the arts? Um, I mean, yes. They not, you know, I think they played it 
it was interesting because they were definitely supportive and like, oh, wow, very nice drawing, you know, and like all of that. <laughs> but like, I, I think um, as I got older and I kept drawing, I think it got a little frightening for them mm. because they're like, what, you know, okay, <laughs> you know, like, when are you gonna, <laughs> what are you doing? And, um, you know, and it's, and when I said I wanted to go to art school, that one was a very big hurdle to get over. They were, you know, they, they were worried and with good reason, honestly. Now, from what I've seen with the art world, you know, it can be really difficult. So from what I've seen now at this point, being 32 and having done this for, I want to say, yeah, about eight years full time, it makes a lot more sense now having seen <laughs> how freaking hard it's been, you know, and how much, uh, how much of a journey it's been. So yeah, they were, they were, you know, yeah, it was, it was an uphill battle at certain points, but once I started getting into galleries and doing all of that, you know, obviously they were super supportive and now they're my biggest cheerleaders, you know, now they're always like, you know, don't lose faith, just keep doing it, just keep going, you can do this, you know, it's kind of their perspective now. As far as like opportunities to learn, like uh, at a young age, I know that you went to an all girls Catholic school and, and I don't, yeah. I've never been to a private school or I've always been to just public schools. So like, I don't know what the difference in like opportunities are with Catholic schools. Like, did you have, did you feel like you had the same opportunities to pursue art uh, as you might have had in a public school? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Are you, yeah. Um, are you talking also from like the political perspective, how like certain things, certain subject matters wouldn't have been as uh, appreciated in a Catholic school? I think, I think partly that, but then also just do they even have a flourishing art program? Like, is it even something uh, that you could entertain yeah. as an, as an op option, you know? <laughs> no, honestly, that's a really good question. Um, because, so I was really, really lucky. Uh, I loved my high school experience. Um, I went to a school called Holy Names in um, in Seattle, and they um, they're super STEM focused, you know. So it's an all girls school, but they're really they were really focused on pushing girls into feeling like they can be, you know, scientists or mathematicians or working in you know or working in medicine or whatever, you know, like these these areas that maybe girls aren't as actively encouraged. So the school is super, super focused in that arena, but I was really lucky as well because we had the most incredible art teacher. Um, her name was Amy Anderson, and she was so she made such an incredible environment for finding, you know, what you love in art and expressing yourself that, you know, the school is uh, as average on average supportive as most other schools, but she in particular was what made it you know, from good to spectacular, nice. you know, so yeah. That's awesome. And, and so you ended up going to Pratt um, as far as yes. like universities go. And I believe you're the third person that's, that's gone to Pratt that I've talked to. I think Travis Louie was the first and, and then oh, Caitlin really? Hackett. So like, I guess what motivated your decision to, to go to Pratt? Well, I think so. There were a couple different things that came together. One is I got a scholarship. Um, so that was a huge motive because obviously art school is really expensive. Um, so that was a huge component. And two, um, you know, Pratt is, uh, it was more of a traditional bend and um, a little bit more, you know, like a more of a traditional, like atelier kind of an environment. And um, I really have always been drawn to tradition, more traditional media. It felt right, 
you know, there wasn't any other way to say it. It just felt when we came, we visited, we looked around. I also, I didn't get into RISD. So that was the other, it was like Pratt or RISD and I didn't get in. So <laughs> that made it kind of easy sure. too, you know? So yeah, but I, I loved Pratt. It was, it was perfect. It was perfect for me in particular. So I guess, you know, going to New York, I mean, you were already kind of in a big city environment, but New York is like a whole other thing. So like, was that a big change for you and like that adjustment? Oh my God. It was, yeah. Yeah. It was a massive change. I was, um, you know, Cause yeah, we would go running around downtown Seattle when I was 17 and 16, we would skip class, you know, and go down to like Broadway and Seattle was a lot different then than what it is now from what I understand and what I've heard. Um, I haven't been back in a long time, but in New York, there's nowhere that even can scratch the surface of New York, save maybe like Tokyo or whatever, Shanghai, um, in terms of size. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely a huge stretch experience. It was, um, like it was, it was eye opening in so many ways. And, um, it definitely felt like a small town kid, you know, kind of being exposed for the first time to a big, an actual huge city. Um, you know, and I made those classic mistakes like the subway ones. And I definitely, I had my things. I got mugged at knife point at one point. Like I had like, yeah, 13 years later, I've got fairly, fairly battle scarred at this point. <laughs> is that like one of those experiences like uh, like everybody has at, at some point being robbed at knife point? Like <laughs> it, it's just it's one of those things where if you live in New York long enough, at some point it's going to yeah, happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think happily, I will say I don't know anyone else who did. And if, even okay. for me, it was the craziest circumstances. I was walking home when it was sunset on a totally safe street totally fine and um you know but just wrong place wrong time the circumstances and um but nobody else i know i don't even know anybody who's been pickpocketed honestly so i i don't know i don't know but i can't speak for all new yorkers obviously it's just my friends so yeah (laughs) and so your your focus at pratt was communications design which i think was the same as travis and i remember talking with them about it like what an ambiguous name that is like i'm not exactly (laughs) i'm not exactly sure what to even make of that term i think what he explained was sort of an umbrella of a bunch of different focuses so for you was it more like illustration is that what your focus was within that no, that's a good question. So com so com D we called it communications design. So yeah, it was an umbrella program for advertising, graphic design, and illustration degrees. So originally when I went to Pratt, my parents' stipulation was we will like, you know, we'll be on board with this so long as you I mean, again, the scholarship made a difference, but in addition, like you're not going to art school unless you're studying graphic design. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm studying graphic design. So uh, I went to Pratt and I went, was in ComD and um, underneath the umbrella program of ComD, graphic design is one of those majors. And uh, about midway through my sophomore year, um, I realized that I freaking hated graphic design. (laughs) I just, I could not, it was just like, cause moving like one little pixel at a time. I just, I love typography and I also have a lot of respect for you know, graphic designers who do it and can do it so well, because it's such a um, psychological art form. You know what I mean? Um, But it just wasn't for me. And so 
I knew that I wanted to be a fine artist, but I would have had to take an extra year of school, which was just way too financially not going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Um, it was way too expensive. So I was able to transfer from graphic design to illustration, mm -hmm. which is still under the umbrella of Condi. So I didn't have to take an extra year. And that was actually why I ended up in illustration <laughs> as opposed to fine art. Did you get any friction from your parents? Because they had set that line that you have to be in graphic yeah. design. <laughs> I didn't tell them until I'd done it. So okay. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I, was, I didn't tell them until it was, I, I think until I start like had like my second day of the semester or something like okay. that, you know, having started it. So, yeah. <laughs> so I guess moving into illustration, like what did you imagine your, like what was your career goal at that point? You know, graduating with a degree in illustration, what were you hoping to do with that? You know, that's a good question. I think, um, at that point and at that point in life, I was kind of looking at everything. I was trying to figure out what, you know, exactly that. What do I want to do and why do I want to do it? And, um, I have this kind of, I kind of have this, uh, I don't know where I had, I must've read this in some book somewhere. I read a lot of self-help books. I, it's just something I do apparently. Um, and I remember running across this really interesting idea, which is in essence, like, it's pretty common, but if you're the absolute best at one thing, it could be the most random, you know, a niche thing. But if you're the guy for this one niche thing, um, you will be successful. You can find success. And um, I, so when I was in the middle of this, thinking about this switch and thinking about how I wanted to do fine art instead, I kind of was thinking like, you know, if I were to make the apex of what I wanted to see. Like, like, let's just ignore from a work perspective. Let's ignore the amount of labor that's required. Let's ignore uh, anything regarding possibility, what I think I can do. Just be as wild in terms of my dreaming of like, what's the best kind of work I, that I wanna see in this world, so to speak. Um, and I, I love Leonardo da Vinci. I love the Burlington House cartoon. I saw that um, and I love Klimt and, you know, and I was also always really in influenced by those early Renaissance works, you know, with the halos and things like that. And I thought to myself, like, you know, geez, if I, I can't imagine what it would look like to be in a room full of this kind of work, this kind of weird vision I had. And you know what, I'm just going to try to make it. And in terms of a plan, in terms of figuring out my life direction, in terms of figuring out, like, no, I just need to make the best work I possibly can and other things will figure themselves out. If I don't know if that, does that make sense? Does that answer yeah. your question? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so I guess, were, were you already thinking in terms of being a gallery artist? Because you can go in several directions with an illustrations degree, right? You could go into commercial illustration. You can go into, you know, totally. comic books. You can do a lot of things with illustration. So were you already thinking about, I want to be a gallery artist? Gallery artist. I think, you know, it's, I, I think I was at that point. Um, tr truly, it's, it's kind of galling to think about how little I <laughs> planned when I was making these like life pivots. But really that the main thing I was focused on wasn't even the how it was the, the what, like, what do I want to make? And um, so I wasn't even thinking in terms of like what I want it to be a book cover. It was just, mm. what's the work look like? Like what's the apex of the work? And as I started really fighting to make this kind of vision I had and really pushing and it's, taken a lot of work to get to the point where I feel like I'm getting there finally 15 years later, for God's sake. 
Um, <laughs> but like, I, I think um, it kind of marinated into, oh, the people who do this show their work in galleries. That's so it was almost like this reductive process of like going backwards and being like, oh, this is what a gallery artist does. Like that's, mm. oh, I want to be an artist. That's what I'm doing, I guess. It seems very like pure to me because I mean, rather you know, rather than uh, being influenced by is this a marketable thing that I'm creating or <laughs> is this going to satisfy X Y needs, you're thinking about what do I want to make and I'll figure <laughs> out what to do with it after I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a I was a completely naive 21 year old girl. You know, I just didn't. Life's realities had not punched me in the face yet. You know, I hadn't really, and like also, you know, I think this was the other thing was like I I went through a period of a lot of financial strain, but up until that point, I had been a very spoiled, like very very privileged, very fortunate girl who had never had to be hungry. I'd been very very lucky, and so I do think that that contributed to a real sense of naivete. So, you know, trying to plan it out and figure it out. And um, yeah, and then when a bunch of financial things did happen, then it was like, oh, God, I really have to make this work, you know. So it all worked out, I think, in the end, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and so you ultimately graduated in 2012 with your with your BFA in illustration. And I guess how did you feel about just your overall time in school? I mean, was that a, a rewarding experience to you? Like, did it help you grow in the in the ways that you needed? Yes, that was, um, I mean, Pratt was perfect. In particular, the illustration department at the time was really focused on um, just helping you build and figure out aesthetically who you are. And I just had the best teachers. You know, Kenichi Hoshin was a huge, huge help and influence throughout the years. Um, He's still been incredible and still is a mentor of sorts. And uh, Rudy Gutierrez was really, really incredible too. Veronica Lawlor. Um, you know, Ching Park, just, uh, so Pratt was such a perfect nurturing environment for figuring it out. And so once you graduated, um, did you have no desire to go back to Seattle? Like, it seems like you stuck around New York. Would that just become home to you at that point? Yeah. You know, well, it was complicated, uh, because I think, um, so my parents, uh, went through through a bankruptcy when, because they were in the middle of moving their business uh, from Seattle to uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. And um, so, yeah, and it was going to be a really good move, but the problem, it kind of happened like, you know, a stack of cards, like it was, they were in the middle of the move at in early 2008 when everything was great, mm. the economy was swinging. And then, um, then as they were in the middle of this huge move and you you know again you're moving manufacturing equipment all of this stuff it's a big deal uh 2008 you know the the crisis hit and one by one their investors went bankrupt and it kind of fell like a house of cards so uh they weren't really able you know they uh Basically, my extended family came together and helped to make sure that, you know, they were okay, but they had to move to Louisville, Kentucky, um, which I had never been to before. And Seattle, you know, so basically I didn't have anybody there. So for years, I wasn't really able to go back because it's so expensive and, you know, you get a hotel and a rental car and all that. I couldn't really afford it. And so um, Seattle... I have like a little bit of a hole in my heart where Seattle is because like I haven't been back in so long and I really want to pretty soon. Um, 
but I kind of, yeah, I kind of hit a point where I'm like, okay, so New York is home now. And I had to make it here, my whole base, everything, my community. Yeah. And what, what is the art community like? I mean, what, what has your experience with the art community been like since you've been there? Uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, I mean, all like everyone's awesome. You know, there's a lot of artists here who have, you know, been fortunate enough to, you know, have friendships with and like, you know, interact with. And obviously there's tons of inspiration everywhere in the city because there's just, it's an endless number of shows and an endless number of um, things like that. Um, yeah. The art community is awesome. There's just so much inspiration to draw on, so to speak. And so, so like once you got out of school, what kind of like work did you do right away? Were you, did you dive right into your personal practice or were you, did you spend any time like doing commercial work just to, to pay the bills? No, I was, um, I was worried that if I did, I was really worried that if I ended up doing commercial work that I wouldn't, um, that I wouldn't do the personal work, you know, because you, cause that like creative engine. And I don't recommend that necessarily as a means. Like I do think I, I was so hell bent on making this work and um, that I got a waitressing job, you know, which I knew um, first off I needed it just to pay the bills, but like, you know, I could have gotten something that was a little bit easier, like a secretary job or like, you know, something that's a little bit less physical and waiting tables. I don't know if you've ever worked in the service industry, but it can be pretty brutal. Um, so I uh, was really hell bent on making sure that, you know, I had a, a strong fire under my ass to push. And so I would wake up every day and work in the morning and then I would go and wait tables at night and um, personal practice immediately. And then I got really lucky because Zach Tudor from Supersonic Electronic, which was a, uh, which isn't a wonderful art blog. He was having a group show and he was um, my first real break, you know, uh, and he sold those pieces all sold. And I think I made something like $2 an hour on each piece that sold, or like, I think it was even less, maybe even like $1.30 an hour, something crazy like that, but they sold. And I, you know, it was like this huge victory, like, oh my God, I can't believe I just yeah. sold two pieces. So, and then Ken Harmon gave me a chance with spoke art and that was kind of my beginning. Very cool. So how did, I guess, how did Zach come across your work and, and, and you make that connection? So I was obsessively and relentlessly sending my pic pictures of my work <laughs> to every blog on the internet. <laughs> in the meantime, I was like, hi, this is what I do. Please look. You know, I, I think at one point I had made a list of like the top 70 art blogs on the internet. And of course, everyone ignored me, like except for a handful. Um, and Zach Tudor, though, was like, wow, you know, I really love what you're doing. Like, I'm going to post it. And the posts did well. And then he said, hey, we're having this group show. So mm. that was kind of how it got started. So awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And I think your first solo show was at in Seattle, Rock LaRue. Is that your yes. first solo show? Or did you, how did you have a show before that? I had had a couple shows. So yeah, I was at Spoke Art. So primarily group shows and then rock the rue with Kristen anderson who was lovely um in you know in seattle and um that was really great a wonderful experience the work sold and yeah i just kind of kept going it was kind of um it was definitely like showing especially in those early days like show to show to show it was definitely paycheck to paycheck still waiting tables trying to make this work you know um and uh, seeing like, how is everybody else doing this? You know, because 
it was a, it was a, it was a fair amount of money, but it wasn't enough to live on, if that makes mm. sense. And um, yeah, so that was really, really great. Um, that was the start, and then I just kept going and kept building. And so I guess, how did you get to, uh, I mean, what was the point where you felt like, okay, I have enough financial stability where I can give up the, the waitressing work? That's a good, that's, so that was a point. So the first couple years, so the first four years were grueling because those were the years where, um, you know, cause like, don't get me wrong. Like these galleries, like, uh, spoke art and, um, rock LaRue, like they are, they show some incredibly successful artists who are making it full time. I was the pipsqueak brand new to the game that they were giving a chance to. So, um, so like I was still figuring this out and building. And, um, one of the ways that it works for most people is you just have to get your price point past a certain threshold. And so that for me came with um, Steve at Arcadia um, Gallery, which at the time was located in Soho. They've since moved to California and now moved, I think they moved back to Soho. But he gave me my first real, like some, my first real opportunities where he tripled the price of the work, I Mm. think overnight and kept, yeah, and was able to sell. And yeah, he was, he really was able to move the work. And so that was the first point where I was like, okay, at this point, a price point, I can make this work. You know, if I'm, if I'm walking with at least a thousand per piece, then I can live, um, based on, but I, you know, it's, it's hard to say that though, because like, it's, uh, sorry if I'm all over the place. Um, I feel like sometimes I communicate in <laughs> 5 million directions at once. Um, the thing is like, it was, it was a very complicated metric because you have to bear in mind, I have to calculate how long on average does a piece take to make? And then how much is, how much am I making an hour really is the calculations. And at each point I had to check in like, all right, what am I making hourly? And am I able to subsist and, yeah. you know, and does it, and what percentage of the work sells? So is, is that how you, you measure your price points is by the amount of, cause I know there's a lot of different methods, right? It's the size of totally. the work, the, the mediums, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can, can come up with yeah. that number. Is yours based more around the time that you put into it? That's a good question. So for me, no, I, um, like I said, you know, I think it's because I started perfectly happy to be making a dollar 45 an hour on the work. <laughs> like, like just jazzed beyond belief. Don't get me. I would not feel that way now, but like, <laughs> that's kind of like, that was the starting point in the perspective and just, you know, kind of seeing it like, okay, I just need to. So the goal for me is always just the, the market really determines the price is the work selling at this price point at like 80% is 80% of the work selling at this price point. And if the answer is yes, that's the, then we keep budging, up, edging up the price point. But I don't know how much you've spoken to other artists on this podcast about this issue. My understanding of it from everybody who's an expert in this, in the art world, is you really can't ever lower your prices. So you have to be incredibly careful about yeah. raising them. And, um, you know, so I always err on the side of going cheaper for my work than, um, like, I always end up, like, yeah, trying to think of it like, what do I really think this is going to sell for, for sure? And then, you know, what feels like a little bit more of a stretch? And then I will work with my gallerist right now, who's Jerry Suki, who is amazing. Um, he, I've been working with him for six years. He knows my work in and out. He's, you know, been in, an incredible champion. And um, we work together to find like, 
all right, what do we think is, what do we think this is actually worth as defined by collectors in the market really? Yeah. Cause you're right. Like that, that there is a lot of stigma around going backwards and, and the, the impact that that, I mean, you know, the responsibility of our people that have already bought your work if is is now their work worth less. Like there's a there's a lot of concern about just going backwards in price. So that is a very kind of careful thing to to go it's up. It's a balancing act. Yeah, because yeah, I want to respect my collectors. You know, these people invested in me. You know, mm-hmm. they took their money and they put it on they bet on me. Like I wanna honor that. And so I will I'm very like I always will err on that side of caution where I would rather the work be where it is for too long, too cheap for too long, then to make a jump too rapidly. So to respect them as well. For sure. So at some point, you know, once you're getting your feet under, you got your feet under, you you, you moved to Hawaii, which seems like a, a, <laughs> a, an enormous change of pace. You moved to Maui yeah. after living in New York for uh, almost, almost probably 10 years at that point. Like what prompted that move to Hawaii? Well, that is a story. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, well, so I, uh, I met a guy, honestly, mm. um, my now husband, Matt, and, um, he hates New York. He can't stand it. He doesn't like it. He's a nature guy, which I can't <laughs> blame him. I also love nature, but you know, he just, it really is a stretch for him. And, um, so we were dating, we were, we had started dating and we'd been together for maybe, I want to say a year and a half. We had just moved in together maybe three months beforehand and he looked at me and he said I hate it here I really I really I want to go somewhere else and I said okay you know and he said I I I don't want to go anywhere else like I've always imagined that you know this is my home you you don't understand like I lost my home I don't have a home in Seattle anymore New York is my home like I I don't want to go anywhere she's like okay if you could move anywhere in the world, where would you move? I was like, oh, all right, Japan, uh, Paris, London, Hawaii. And then it's like, stop, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and two weeks later, two weeks later, this motherfucker got a job on Maui. And I'm like, okay, I guess we're moving to Maui. You did say Hawaii, so. I did say Hawaii. I couldn't argue with him. And um, he is uh, he is a project manager to the core. So he coordinated the majority of the move, which is wow. one of them, like a massive life perk is being married to an excellent project manager just as a side note highly recommend it and um yeah hawaii was like oh my god it was a dream yeah i mean just that so you know you Going to New York was a huge adjustment. Going to Hawaii now another huge adjustment <laughs> in the other direction. Yeah, I guess how did how did that work out for you, and how did you like living in Hawaii? I mean, with that slower pace that comes with it. Oh man, it was beautiful. I think Hawaii, Maui in particular, is one of the most beautiful places in the world, in my opinion. Um, the beauty there is it feels almost sacred. And haunting, you, you know, people associate Hawaii with only with beaches, which it, of course it has, and um, you know, pina coladas and resorts and things like that. But the reality of Hawaiian culture, you know, the um, you know, basically the Hawaiian people is, and their culture is so beautiful and thoughtful and so in tune with nature and so in tune with you know the um, the aina is like I guess the Hawaiian word for it. Um, 
that there's this whole side of Hawaii that's so much more uh, rugged and rustic and dangerous, honestly. It's actually a lot more dangerous than people realize on these hikes really? and these vertical mountains. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's a lot of tourists who think it's like Disneyland and they <laughs> they don't they do not respect the the mountains and you know it's it, it can be very dangerous but um so it was deeply inspiring. It feels yeah, it feels like a very sacred place in a lot of ways. Uh, how long how long did you end up staying there before you moved back? We moved we we were there for 2 years and we had to move back honestly because of family and also um Matt. So if you can't tell by now, I can live anywhere. Um, I can do my work from anywhere just as long as I have my studio set up and everything's good to go. So Matt really though, with his work, he's been more location dependent, not as much anymore for other reasons, but uh, he got a job offer that was too good to refuse. And um, so then we had to move to Boston. So no offense to Boston. I'm sure Boston's a lovely city. It was just a little bit of a going from like a wonderful hot tub into like diving into a like freezing plunge pool or whatever those are called from Hawaii. You know, it's, oh my God, literally the opposite. The way you said we had to move to Boston was slightly offensive to Bostonites. I know. I'm so sorry. It's a beautiful city. It's got so much going for it. It really is. It was just... God, in contrast to, it was just a really hard contrast to Maui, yeah. I guess is all. So, you know, but it was fun. I think it was good to be closer to family in the end as well, which was really nice. So how did you end up making your way back to, to New York? Like, did that just pull you back at some point? Yeah, you know what it was is, I know we, we hop around a lot. So um, right before COVID, again, I'm saying this like I like Boston was a beautiful city. It really, it was, um, and it was so welcoming. You know, we, we managed to, you know, we got a little crew of people we hung out with there and I just felt so welcomed in Boston and, um, you know, and it has so much to offer. Uh, that being said, the community, my community in Boston wasn't as developed as my community in New York is. And I'm a very introverted person. You know, it takes me years to really become close friends with someone. And so, I really, really missed having my friends, um, you know, and I, I missed the insanity of New York. And so I kind of looked at Matt and I was like, okay, we've gone on your little boondoggle of going to Maui <laughs> and going to Boston. <laughs> Can you please just give me a couple more years in New York? And then, you know, before we have kids or anything, and so I can have a little bit more time here and then we'll, we'll leave again and we'll figure it out. But, and to his credit, he was like, okay, you know, I get it totally. So he came back for me which I appreciated. No, that's awesome. And was, was there a period of like re readjusting to the, the pace of New York once you got back or were you ready to go? Not at all. <laughs> like, I love it. It's such a crazy city. You know, I just, I don't even mind the smell of urine anymore. Honestly, <laughs> the city, I know it's just, I don't care. I, it's like a crazy, it's like New York is like, I don't know. It's just people are, it's, it's nuts. It's, you know, I think it's almost, it feels almost like a meat grinder, you know, it's just, it's so, and the things that I have seen that you just, from living here for, you know, X amount of years, is just sometimes mind boggling that any New Yorker sees between guys riding unicycles to work to, you know, other, you know, other things. Um, 
I just <laughs> you're selling yeah. it so well. The smell of your meat grinder. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like this crazy. I don't know. Yeah, it's like it's like a little bit of Stockholm syndrome, but I love it. So <laughs> you know, it's it's definitely my home. All right. So let's dive into the work itself. And and you sure, mentioned sure. earlier, um, you know, as far as early inspirations, you mentioned the Renaissance period of, of yeah. art that inspired a lot of, of what you got excited about early on. And you can definitely see that, I guess, in in the work that you create. So what is it about that period of, of art and that like style of art that's made such a strong source of inspiration for you? Well, you know, it's it's actually um, I think it's a it's it, there's a confluence of factors at play there for me. It's um one, uh, I think there's always something kind of interesting about art that feels a little strange or a little off. And in the Renaissance, they were still, you know, as you know, they were still figuring out the rules of realism and representation. So, for example, you know, Botticelli to me is always fascinating because the way that he works with the picture plane, it's almost, you know, those, um, the Flemish tapestries, how like the figures are like, like on, like there's no realistic plane of um of perspective it's just like the figure in the foreground is just lower and then there's somebody (laughs) yeah you know what i mean uh and and botticelli kind of does that in a lot of his work and i think there's i've always thought there was something kind of interesting about that kind of off like it's i i and i think it has something to do with it speaks to a time before science it speaks to a time when magic was still really a mode of understanding the world and and magic wasn't something that was seen as this like you know harry potter like ooh like fairy tale thing it was real really something more sinister and scary and what like lightning was magic right and i think yeah and i think something about that time period when science which is incredible but uh humanity didn't have answers and so art these pictorial representations of the Renaissance um, are kind of it, their way of figuring out this very strange world we find ourselves in. And I think in addition to that, um, Renaissance artwork to me, in particular Da Vinci, um, I know he's probably, he is the most famous artist in the world, but I do think I don't this I he's still my favorite god damn it I don't care. He's so good. Uh, and he uh there is something about his work that I haven't really experienced with any other artist but when you confront it in person you actually feel like you're confronting something that is sacred and that is just as cognizant of you as you are of it. And I think that kind of like that sacred object like this this object that you feel like you're looking at it and it, it has it's imbued with this uh, something, you know what I mean? And I think Renaissance art really captures that. Mm. And I think something that that's really strong in all of those is, uh, and something that that is, I think is a central focus for you as well is is iconography, and just making that kind of uh, sacred object, like you said. Um, I guess is is your specific use of of iconography or icons um and you know intended to tell a story in some way like are you trying to communicate a message through the icons and symbols that that you represent totally um you know it's it's to be honest with you i feel like i'm still figuring that out um with it in terms of i always like there to be some form of narrative like some sense of like this is one of the reasons i'm always playing one of the biggest tools i'm always using in my work is hair 
in the sense that when you when you it's so easy to give a sense of motion with hair like a sense of either floating or a hard wind or a stillness or so like I, I so I always want the work to have a sense of motion and I always like for the figures to feel like they have a, a sense of interaction between them I think what I am kind of solidifying for this show, which is slated for fall, I think the opening date's going to be on my birthday, November 5th. Oh, nice. <laughs> which would be really cool, honestly. Uh, I'm a Scorpio, if you couldn't tell. Um, so <laughs> um, what, what I've been figuring out with this show is um, I really have always been also interested in witches and societies of like these kinds of societies of like the uh, like a pagan religions and the religions pre-Christianity, pre-science, pre all of this, like the religions where, again, people were trying to figure things out. So in terms of narrative, to answer your question, I am finding that I'm creating this kind of world where there's this interaction between between these witches doing these, I've, I'm thinking of them as spells, but I think I'm going to come up with a different word for it. And I want it to feel like the viewer almost in like a Blair Witch Project kind of way, even though I'm going to be honest with you, I've never seen that movie because I cannot handle horror, but I, this is what I imagine it's like. So I'm probably going to sound like an idiot on this, but this is what I'm imagining. Like this really terrifying thing where, you know, you're on a hike and it's way past dark and you are lost. And you're pretty scared because you think, like, I don't know how I'm going to get home. And you're kind of freaking out. It's getting darker and darker. And now the stars are starting to come out. And you're, it's, and then you just catch out of the corner of your eye this group of women. But they are clearly not human. Like, they're clearly, like, they're clearly divine, but not necessarily benevolent. You don't know if they're benevolent or evil or not. You don't know. There's kind of this terror to it but they're beautiful and it's like the whole thing is like so it's 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 almost hypnotizing what you're seeing but it's also it's also like wait a minute maybe I really shouldn't be here because I'm stumbling on something dangerous I don't know I don't know if that makes sense but no that's interesting because I think uh, in an early interview uh that I I read um you talked about darkness in a very different way than what you just described here which where you described it as a trying to achieve like a comforting darkness where so, yeah. something where you feel safe and you know comforted yeah. which I thought was interesting because that's not an obvious kind of connection to darkness and comfort but now you're describing something very different which is yeah. like I don't know what the hell you know um these people are yeah. doing I'm I'm afraid because of the unknown so have, yeah. are you going in a, a different direction intentionally in that way yeah that's a really good question um yeah I have been I've been looking at it because I think the thing is you know, don't, I mean, it's obvious from my work that I love beauty. I love to make things beautiful. I love to zoom in on a square inch and go like like an ant across the page with a pencil. <laughs> like, you know, I love and I love just overwhelming beauty and um, I love drawing the female figure. But I find that, in my opinion, um, my best work is work that has what I think think of it as teeth where there's just this edge of uh, a little bit like, ooh, I, that's kind of scary or that's kind of weird. You know, what is that? And I think, yeah, so the, the relationship to the darkness, um, part of that, I've like shifted that in a way. And that's, I, I think, though, so that's like a psychological tool I'm using. I don't know if that, I don't think it comes across for the viewer. It's just how I'm thinking of it, it to, to make it, if that makes sense. 
And so I guess you said you're you're not uh, you you don't like horror movies or afraid of horror movies. So going in a more <laughs> scary direction is an interesting choice. Is that like your way of confronting your own fears My in a way? Fears? <laughs> yeah. Dude, maybe I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I think yeah, because I think I maybe you know it's it's funny because I think like I almost want to like I don't know if I I know that they the viewers can't see it, but I almost want to like show you like. I, oh, nice. it, this is not going to make a difference, but uh, whatever. I'll give you some images if you want. Um, but no, I I don't know. I think um, I don't know. I think that's a really good question. I know the reason that I can't handle horror movies is actually a lot, is really mundane. It's just I'm very sensitive. That Matt likes to say sensitive flower, <laughs> which, which I think is meant in a derogatory way, but you know, he's joking. But I think, um, yeah, I've just always had a really hard time with that stuff. So I, I don't know. I, I think, because the thing is, to be realistic, like the work itself doesn't feel 100% that horror instilling. It's still, in my opinion, beautiful and captivating, and you want to look at it, in my opinion. Um, maybe not everybody's going to feel that way. Uh, but that's what I'm trying to have in the back of my mind as a narrative to make sure that it doesn't veer too much into, Ooh, you know what I mean? Like just over the top. Yeah. So when you're, when you're working on a a full body of work like this, do you try to tie the pieces together in, in a way that, that I guess, uh, has that sort of narrative throughout all of them? Yes. So, yeah. So right now with this show in particular, I'm really trying to go in that direction where it is. It's almost like I'm thinking of it. I'm making up a society of witches in a way. There's no other. I mean, I want to be also respectful to the Wiccan community and see if I can come up with a better word because um, but something something where it's a community of these demigoddesses is maybe closer, honestly, demigoddesses um, that are this this point, if there's a triangle between animal, earth, and human, they're smack dab in the middle of that triangle. So uh, so this whole show has this narrative. I'm building that world. I'm even, honestly, I'm like writing out these little short stories on the side to like help me kind of conceive it, which I'm never going to show anyone because I'm terrible. I can't even, but it helps me, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, I guess how do you how do you arrive at, at your ideas for pieces or or for like large bodies of work like this? Do you do you do intentional like brainstorming activities or do you just write like you said a minute ago? <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, it's all over the the process is all over the place, especially in the beginning, and then it becomes extremely regimented. So to start, it could be as simple as me walking down the street and having a vision in my mind, like seeing a visual. Uh, it could be going to a museum and seeing a piece and saying, I love the way that they oriented that figure. I'm going to take that exact orientation, but I'm going to switch it in this way and put this in there. You know, I take a lot from other artists and I take from photography a lot. I will draw other photographers work all the time in my work and I try to change it so that you couldn't, you know, you can't tell. Um, so I find inspiration from all sorts of areas. And then as the process goes on though, then I'm taking a ton of reference photos. I'm taking, you know, I'll take photos of models and then I'll take some photos from the internet um, and I'll start to bring it together and try to make an actual collage and Photoshop layer after layer of tons of photos trying to like put this together. And that is in a lot of ways the most intellectually difficult part of the piece because what what's really important to me is that the piece feels 100% what I call airtight, meaning every single leaf Every single hair, everything 
works compositionally with each other, that it couldn't be a single other way. So I have to really, I move everything around. I'll take tons of references. I'll have this one reference that I love, and then I'm just realizing it's just not going to work, and I'll have to get rid of it and figure something else out. And, um, and by the way, as well, those references are extremely high resolution because when I'm drawing from a photo reference, for me, there are some brilliant artists out there who can draw from their head. I am not one of them unless there are le their leaves or hair. And I can make up some, but it's just... The piece is only ever going to be as good as your reference, and in my from for my work at least. Um, so these are huge files, and the collage honestly can take me like a couple weeks from start to finish to really make sure that it's perfect. And then from there, it's almost like I have to be a human printer for the piece itself. You know, like someone said to me at one point, like, why don't you just have the collage be the piece? And it's like because the drawing, the process of drawing it and gilding it is what unifies it and makes it yeah. a totally unified world in my opinion. And so, so back to the, um, the sourcing like reference photos and you said you take a lot of your own photos and, and use models for that. When, when you set up like a photo shoot, do you have, do you already have a really solid idea of what, how you want to pose them and, and what kind of, um, you know, figures you want them to, to create for you? Or is it more of an organic thing where you just get people in a room and start taking photos? Totally. It can be, it depends on the piece. So there can be pieces where, again, I will have seen, for example, a reference on the internet and I would have been like, this is so beautiful. I want to work with this, but I'm going to change like, like if it's a face, for example. And, you know, so I take that face and I'll put it in Photoshop and maybe I will replace the eyes and I'll change. I always change the hair. Um, I try to change it you know, a significant amount. So it's mine, if that makes sense. Um, and also, so I'm respectful to the original artist, like the original photographer or whatever. Um, so when I'm doing stuff like that, then it's extremely direct what I'm doing in terms of positioning the models. And I know exactly where I want the hand. I know exactly where I want the arms. I know exactly the type of model I, I, I need. Whereas if I'm starting from scratch, like let's say I was on sidewalk and I had this image for like a standing woman with this vertical kind of dot spell thing like that I'm, you know, because that's a concept that I'm working through right now. Um, then in that case, I will uh, have the models in and I'll just do a million different iterations and try to see how does this look? How does this look? You know, and then, and then bring it together. But I, I think, who was it who wrote um, that one? Was it, um, there's this one quote, I'm forgetting where, the writer was like, uh, writing a book is at the beginning is the most difficult because the first sentence determines the last sentence or something mm -hmm. like, I don't know, maybe I'll, the point is that as the collage continues, there's so many fewer choices. It has to be, I don't know. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> well, and, and, and as you're building that composition, I, I found it super fascinating uh, discovering that you tend to organize your compositions around patterns instead of like light. Um, yeah. So I wanted to explore that a little bit because I saw a process shot that you had posted. I think it was on Instagram where you had a collage that was marked up with all these zones, different colored zones, and you had like connections <laughs> yeah. between them showing relationships. Like it seemed fascinating to me just how you were working <laughs> through that. Um, so I, can you describe that process a little bit about using patterns to kind of organize your compositions? Totally, totally. So it's it's it borders on the insane, I think, honestly, <laughs> but this is just this is just how I like to think about it um, because I really uh, – so what's the best way of describing this? Um, so basically, 
I think about the work, like I will think about the work in terms of like fuzzy vision, for example, where you're seeing like general areas and then sharp vision, right? But there's a couple, so for example, there's a couple different ways that I will work with pattern in a piece. So for starters, contrast dark and light. There's a reason I love only working with, you know, charcoal on paper and then throwing in the gold leaf is because really these patterns are composed in terms of black and white and maybe in, you know, areas of gray. So first I'll start with that. Like, okay, how am I moving the, the eye around in terms of the lights and the darks? There has to be an even, uh, a proper distribution and everything is conceived in terms of triangles. So when you're looking at my work, one of my goals is that I have your eye jump to each spot. So once that general framework with dark and light in terms of triangles is worked out, then I take that, it's a very, very rough sketch. It's like these really broad areas of like dark, light, dark, light. And then what I'll do, and like, like thinking like, okay, this is a figure, for example, like this giant block of light is a figure. And then the hair is often a block of dark. And then for example, like a, an area of light would be leaves that are made a lot more light and bright than ones that are in, receded into the, the background, right? Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. uh, it is okay. I, <laughs> I could, I could talk about this for a long time because I think it's so fun. Um, so that's the starting point. And then I try to introduce an additional layer of complexity where then I think in terms of tight and open in terms of pattern. So certain leaves, like really, really, like really detailed leaves with lots of ridges, that's an example of tight pattern work. So I'll have an area of that that's very like bright and you can see it and I'll distribute those in terms of triangles. And then I'll also distribute in terms of triangles. Skin is an open area typically. So this is one of the other reasons I love working with the female form is it's really easy to work with all these open areas versus like the tight pattern work. Um, so yeah, so it's, so there's that. And then lastly, to like really cap it all off, then on top of that, those two layers of triangles and pattern work, then I'll layer on the dots or the butterflies or the gold. And then I have to distribute pattern wise. Like if it's the butterflies, for example, that's an area of really tight pattern work as well. But when you're adding the gold into it, you know, that adds another, a whole other dimension. So you have to distribute that equally and correctly or the dots. Uh, anyway, once again, once again, I digress. How did you arrive at that approach? Is that something that you learned or is just something that you just organically developed because that's just how your brain works? <laughs> I, you know what? It's funny because I think when I was in college and, you know, post, so like uh, going back to when, um, you know, like all those financial things were happening and I was like, holy crap, I need to make this work. Uh, I kind of went through a very obsessive period where I would go to the Pratt Library and I would take out 10 books at a time and I would just sit there and I would spend hours leaving through each one and really, really obsessively drilling into the compositions of the work that I loved the most and trying to analyze it and understand, like fuzzing my vision, then going sharp and seeing how are they doing this? How are they moving your eye around? And that was a really common method that was consistent in all the work I like. Now, this, this method, though, works in particular for me because, again, I work with drawing and this is the one benefit. Drawing has a lot of drawbacks uh, compared to, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> uh, it has a lot of drawbacks in comparison to painting. You know, painting, you can make the most luminescent, gorgeous worlds, uh, and but you compose it in terms of light, as we mentioned. Um, but this is the one area where working with inks and with drawing 
really shines is I can, um, you get that tightness that you're able to do this kind of pattern work. So I was looking at those Renaissance artists, seeing them doing it. And lo and behold, they weren't painting with oil. Most of them were painting with egg tempera or, you know, the Flemish tapestries, you know, they're, they're working with thread. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I stumbled across it and kind of made up my own rules, so to speak. And how, how did you, I mean, you mentioned the difference in mediums and how you by necessity approach it differently. How did you land on charcoal as like your medium of choice rather than paints or like acrylics or oils? Well, I'm, I'm a garbage painter. I am the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, there's something about it. Uh, I just, uh, it is a, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an embarrassment. Uh, I can't figure it out. I don't like it and it doesn't like me. I appreciate it and I have incredible admiration for artists who can handle that medium well because to me it's like I I don't know I don't know what would the best way to be would be to put it like it's it's just so um it's so difficult to get the kind of detail it's not the way my brain works and it's also not the way that my I like to render so on one hand drawing has always been my strength that's what got me into art that's always how I've worked um Charcoal never was my favorite, if I'm going to be honest with you. I actually kind of hate charcoal, but I had to work with it because graphite does not get dark enough. Uh, It has too much flash. It has too much shine for what I'm trying to do. So really, this was the necessity of the vision over enjoyment, without a doubt. And uh, over time, I've now come to love charcoal, but that has been a a rocky relationship, so to speak. So, yeah. And so how did, I guess, Goldleaf enter into the picture? You know, so you could have, it makes sense how you got to charcoal. How did you introduce gold into what you were doing? Yeah, so I was, uh, I fell in love with it when I saw Klimt for the first time in person. Um, I saw what he was doing and I just remember thinking to myself, like, holy crap, like, I can't believe you're allowed to do that and be called an artist. Like, this is so gorgeous. And, you know, at that time I had been trying to figure out and really understand contemporary art and, you know, the, the socially important stuff, um, because I felt like I should, you know, I felt like I needed to understand, uh, you know, the, the, the Mikkel Boramans of the world and the, you know, the, the Ed Ruscha and like all of those guys, you know, the really, the, the important ones and quote unquote, and, um, Klimt kind of, smacked me in the face where it's like, you know, I just want to make beautiful things. And I don't think that that means I'm probably never going to be one of those. I'm never, I'm not aiming for those artists at all. I'm just aiming to make things that make me happy. And I feel really lucky that other people are interested in it. But that's how Goldleaf came in is this was, it was kind of this abandonment of like trying to be accepted by the art establishment, so to speak, and just make the apex of what I wanted to see. And Goldleaf was part of that. Awesome. I guess at one stage in in your process, do you usually figure out what elements are going to be gold, like where gold in your pieces are? Is it part of that early kind of um, you know digital composition work that you do? Yeah, it's um, yes, it's crucial because that's one of the most important. Because obviously, that is the most important mechanism for moving the eye around because uh, it's just so bright and it's so intense. And I work with gold in a lot of different ways where I try to, I dull it in some things and I keep it really bright in other ways. Um, in terms of deciding what objects to make gold, that's a much more uh, intensive process. Like 
fabric took me a while to figure out uh, because I had to figure out how to do it. And that's a part of my process that I do keep a little secret uh, as how I do uh, <laughs> how I do that, that pattern work because it took me a long time to figure it out. And, um, you know, it's kind of one of these things I worked hard for. So and if anybody can, else can figure it out, they're more than, you know, then then go for it, you know, like go go to town. But. Uh, yeah, so I have to, though, in terms of figuring out what objects to make gold, it's all based on pattern work and seeing if there's areas where I can, like, like the butterflies have, like, an, a black and white, uh, like, a very um, graphic architecture to them that makes it so you, you get a sense of what they look like in a dimension, but I only need black to convey that with the line work. Um, and with my fabrics, I'm try I try to do the same thing. Like only like a black architecture is all that's really necessary to give you a sense of this uh, molded effect, so to speak. Does that include like the the like the dot patterns and sort of the geometric uh, gold aspect, you know, elements that you add as well? Is that an app yeah. like something you do at the end once you see the whole piece, or do you plan that from the beginning as well? I plan that from the beginning because it's such an important part of it. And those are always, those are always a nightmare. I call them dot days because they're just so grueling, you know, <laughs> I have to sit there and go, dee, dee, dee. you know, it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, but like, I mean, honestly, probably close to like 2000 on one piece alone. But I think, um, yeah, so that is always worked out ahead of time. And I have, um, I've taken, it's taken me a long time to build up this library of, um, illustrator and Photoshop files, which are just these dot geometries that I've designed and worked with math and like tried to, you know, put them together and things like that. So do you feel like that your, your tendency towards that is a callback to the time you spent in school with graphic design? I mean, as much as you said you hated graphic design, yeah. it feels like a very graphic design approach. Totally. That is that you are, you are so on the money. That is exactly <laughs> what it is. And it's like, it is. And, and, the, and the funny thing is like, it's, I hate doing them, but I love the result. And it's similar to like my <laughs> feeling of appreciation for really competent graphic designers and like their work. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I think the other aspect of of your your process that I'm curious about is is your how you prepare the paper because I know you use stained sure. paper and and I think you you have uh, walnut ink listed as as what it is now and I think it used to be coffee at some point um, so I guess what does that process involve like do you prepare that yourself do you have uh, does somebody provide you with the stained paper what does that involve usually. No, I do it myself. So um, Andrew DeGraff, shout out, um, another one of my super influential teachers in school. He taught us how to uh, stain, stretch and stain watercolor paper. And um, I did start out with coffee uh, for a while, but the effect wasn't consistent enough. And one of the reasons I liked coffee is because it's acidic, so it's going to age in a very specific way. And I really, that's really ties into the meaning of my work in a lot of ways is like this aged like you know ancient artifact is what I want it to feel like uh but what I need is I need the work when it's all in a room to be the exact same color and to be the same consistency and so I had to switch to walnut ink and um you know kind of rely on uh how I do the staining and all of that to kind of give that aged feeling to it so, um, yeah, I made that switch and it's, it's an easy process. It's just, it's just like doing a giant wash in watercolor. It's messy though. Uh, so, <laughs> cause these sheets are big. Uh, but yeah. Have you, I guess, have you ever had any problems using paper as a medium logistically because of the size and or durability of them, you know? 
You know, I've been really lucky. I have made some mistakes on pieces where, for example, like, you know, with painting, a lot of the time you can always paint over something if you make a mistake or you can do something. But with my work, you know, if I spill black ink in the wrong spot, the piece is ruined unless I come up with something. And there have been one or two pieces where I spilled ink in the wrong spot and I had to invent a flower there to go over it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Um, so there's definitely that, but on the bright side with it, um, transporting work is really easy because I just get to roll it up. And I guess painting though, is the same thing. I, I'm not a painter, so I wouldn't know. Um, but yeah, the work is more delicate. I have to be really careful with it. I would argue in comparison to other mediums for sure. Um, but I'm careful. So, you know. Awesome. Uh, shifting gears a little bit before we go into your new show, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the book that you worked on a few years ago. Um, and I'm probably going to completely butcher the pronunciation of a few things oh, as I talk great. about this. <laughs> but I think great. it's like Pudian or Pudan. Yeah, um, yeah. Which was, Pudan. Which is, Pudan, I think. I, I don't, I'm not very good at French, but yes, I believe it's Pudan. Yeah. And it was it was published in 2020 uh, in both uh, I guess sold in both Spain and France. Uh, written by Cecile Rumagier. I yeah, believe is how you pronounce yeah. that. Rujmir, I, I, she's she's so sweet. It's I think Rujmir, I think, I think, um, something. Uh, sorry, sorry, Cecile. <laughs> yeah, I, <don't, laughs> I wish I could pronounce their, you know, of course, this beautiful last name, and just yeah. Americans were butchering it. Um, but right. yeah, something like that. Yes, yes. How did you get involved in in that project? Uh, so it was very, very, um, very, very lucky. Benjamin Lacombe, who is a brilliant artist in his own right, incredibly kind human being, um, he reached out to me and he said, you know, we're doing this book. I'm organizing this book. And Cecile has um, made this manuscript, this basically manuscript for it. And we would really love for you to illustrate it. And my first answer was, I, there's no way I can do this. Like, this is so much work. I can't even imagine it. And um, Benjamin really worked with me to be able to help me, like to help make it possible. And, um, you know, we reduced the number of pages I'd have to do so I could really focus on them. We did some digital wizardry, which made it more possible. And, um, and it was honestly, it was a really wonderful project. Um, really fun, really different from anything I'd done. I was kind of like, you know, I've never, I, I, I'm not very good at drawing settings. And so it was a perfect, uh, it was a perfect opportunity to really dive into that and give something new a try. Was it a really like collaborative process? I mean, you, you said you worked with Ben uh, or Benjamin uh, quite a bit. Did you work with Cecile directly as well? Or was it more of kind of a solo activity? It was more, you know, they, they gave, they, they had some uh, ideas, but they really let me want, run wild with it, which was super appreciated because I think, um, one of the things I was worried about is that I wouldn't be able to do a good job. And so, and one of the reasons for that is like certain subject matter is difficult for me or certain things. And so they really let me kind of uh, follow my gut and gave me suggestions and then asked specifically for like one or two pages that would have been a chat that were a little bit more challenging, uh, but gave me easier deadline, like uh, guidelines with it. And um, so the process really was more creative on my end. And then they were kind of like my benevolent guides throughout the process, <laughs> so to speak. So, yeah. And, and so was the process for you very similar to what you, you do for your personal work or did you approach it differently? I had to approach it differently because the imagery was so different. And because also 
with my work, I have flexibility to, if a piece starts one way and then it ends up veering in a 180 and looking completely different from what I had originally anticipated, which happens a lot, uh, that's okay. But with this, the end result had to adhere to the narrative, of course. Um, so it was very different from anything I'd ever done before in that way and uh, a welcome challenge in that way. But the process was a, a lot more, it had to be a lot more iron tight and a lot more point A to point B to point C. Did you have to do a lot of research just because it did have a pre-existing history with the, you know, being a French fairy tale? Did you research that like time period and, and the story? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, um, yeah, there was a lot of really beautiful inspira visual inspiration. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the author who did the original. It's totally escaping me. It's somebody incredibly famous from like the 17th century or something. Um, but there was already a version of it done that was really, really well known. And so it kind of felt a little daunting to you know, kind of, uh, yeah, kind of, and, um, but, but that also means there was plenty of visual fodder to be working from as well. Awesome. So let's talk about what you have coming up. You mentioned your new show. So I want to talk about that. And it's, so I guess you said it's in November. Tell me about the, the show. Do you have a title? What gallery is it at? Let's talk <laughs> sure, about it. sure. Yeah. So uh, we don't have a title yet. I'm toying with a couple names. Um, potentially Hex is a name I'm toying with, but I don't know if that'll get nixed. Uh, I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, it's with Gallery Flater Mouse in Chicago. So this is the gallery I've been working with uh, for about six years. Like I said, Jerry is my champion. Um, he is just really uh been a huge huge uh you know support of my work over the years so i'm super excited to be taking part and um it's it's a daunting process it's a lot of work for to fill an entire room it's taken me a long time to figure this out so do you know how many pieces they're going to be? I'm not sure yet. because To be honest with you, actually, just before I was meeting for this podcast, he had swung by the studio space like at 9 a.m. today. Uh, he happened to be in New York. And um, so we were going over you know, what we can expect and what we're hoping for. Um, so no defined number yet, as many as possible, with keep, while keeping the, the quality up. Uh, right now I have about, gosh, six large, you know, six, one huge, uh, three medium, two, like 18, not two that are maybe, I want to say 18 by 16 or something like that. Um, and then I'm going to have at least another three medium and then I'm going to do a bunch of little small ones as well. Do you try to mix those sizes up? Is that like an intentional thing for you? Yes, because a lot of the time for some, for whatever reason I draw I draw best when I'm working at life size in some capacity. And with a lot of my previous work, I wasn't able to work life scale because of constraints, not being sure, you know, we weren't sure if what would the reception be to work of that size, you know, and my work can be kind of harder to sell sometimes because there's a lot of nudity in it. Um, so I've normally tried to work at different sizes so I can, you know, see like how is this going how is this going to do you know how is my little brain child coming i don't know if that makes sense but the point is i like to work at life size and working small enables me to zoom in on these points of detail so to speak like hands but the hands are kept the same size and working medium lets me zoom in on something else like a back or you know what have you or it's certain interaction between figures and then working large is a big interaction between figures and more of a setting is established 
Very cool. And what was the date again? You said or like November 5th. Is that? I think that's the official date. That's okay. what we agreed upon today. This morning at 9 a.m. is November 5th, which is also my birthday. So I'm very excited about that. When people come to the opening. They'll have to wish you happy birthday. It's all exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. Awesome. So, so what is the uh, the best way for people to keep up with that and find out the latest about the show as it develops? Definitely. Um, so through Instagram, uh, I post most of my stuff through Instagram and there's going to be a, uh, because I have a lot of the work on its way now, there's going to be a, uh, an exponential torrent of, um, new images of the new work that I've done so far. And then also the stuff that's on the pipeline and there'll be updates on the show and it's going to be at gallery Flader mouse in, uh, it's in Chicago and it's yeah, probably like, I think 6 PM. I'm not sure what the time will be, but yeah, something like that. Are you going to be attending the opening? I will be. Yes, I will be in attendance, probably wearing some clothes to match my uh, <laughs> figures. So, you know, to kind of build out the world. So it'll be fun. It's going to be a really good night. To do that, did you base those patterns on existing clothes that you have? Or are you going to create the clothes? <laughs> <laughs> no, all of it, you know, because I need photo references. Right, so I've yeah, spent true. the past, yeah, I've spent the past couple of years really building out like a, a library of, uh, of, of potential jewelry and uh, fabrics. I love collecting fabrics. Um, you know, some of them I had gotten when I was in Indonesia, others while I was in Mexico, um, you know, and I have some really really fun jewelry i've managed to get as well costume jewelry and things like that as well so awesome is there anything else that you'd want to put on people's radars print releases stuff like that that you have coming up there'll probably be a print release around the time of the show um for sure uh yeah just keep following along and also on my website i do have a newsletter i barely ever send anything unless it's like a show or you know there's new pieces or whatever so definitely um consider signing up for my newsletter if that's your jam awesome so last question and this is something that i like to ask everybody uh who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show <gasps> oh that's such a good question um oh i don't know eric jones yeah, maybe Eric Jones. He's great. Uh, super fun. A really good friend. Uh, a kind of like my kind of like my art compatriot. We've been in the we've, we've uh, you know, been through thick and thin together. Uh, so he's and he's a brilliant guy. He's super fun. He's hilarious as well. So and is he based out of New York there? Do you know him from your time in New York? I do know him from his, my time in New York, but no, he's no longer in New York. He, okay. uh, I think he's in Florida right now. So yeah, but he's all over the place and he's, he's a big deal. He's always making, I think he just did this collaboration with Lululemon, which was insane and awesome. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Alessandra, thank you so much for doing the show. This has really been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. This is a joy. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you guys uh, sticking sticking through all of my half-brained answers. So, you know. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. was perfect. So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alessandra. It was so interesting to hear about how she develops her compositions and, you know, especially how much work that she puts into figuring it out. You know, the way that she said she keeps working on it until it's really quote unquote tight, till there's like no other way that it could be other than what it is. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And as a chronic overthinker, um, that is hard for me to like get to that point. It always seems like there's, you know, something else that can be done. 
So reaching that point where it couldn't be any other way must be an enormous challenge. And then also the way that she puts so much thought into how the viewer's eye moves across the piece and organizes it around these you know, progressive layers of patterns, I thought was super fascinating. I'm excited about the new show that she's working on. It's looking like it's opening on November 5th, which is also her birthday. Uh, the work for this show focuses on this encounter with a group of witches in the woods and shifts her treatment of darkness from having a comforting, safe feeling to being more tense and a lot less certain. But even though there is that shift in tone, beauty and the strong feminine are still at the core of the work. Be sure to follow Alessandra's in the gallery's Instagram to stay up to date with the latest for the show. And if you're actually able to attend in person, remember to wish her a happy birthday while you're there. So thanks again to Alessandra for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. And just a reminder, one big way you could help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's Patreon. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash artifairs. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artifairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artifairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other.